Hello, welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and a founder of myelopathy.org. I'm Eugen Sadler, a person with DCM and also a founder of myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. Welcome. So today we're looking at a role for CSF pressure monitoring in DCM with consultant neurologist and scientist Dr. Carl Zipser from Balgris University Hospital, Switzerland, following his COMP-CORD study. Isn't it great to be hearing from a neurologist? They're such an important part of the care pathway, but from what you've told me, Ben, underrepresented in the research fields. That is certainly the case today, and really the first question I put to Carl, how did he become interested in DCM research? and How can we encourage more neurologists and related disciplines into our field? Welcome, Carl. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me here. The pleasure. And we're going to dig into your recent study, the COMP-CORD study, in, in just a second. But, you know, I thought we'd start perhaps by getting a little bit of background of how you became interested in degenerative cervical myelopathy. So I'm by, by education, I'm a neurologist, and I became um, involved in spinal cord diseases uh, at the end of my residency and then for my fellowship at the Spinal Cord Injury Center at Valgrist. And in, uh, I did mostly rehabilitation of patients with paraplegia, but uh, I was a lot involved with patients with DCM in the outpatients clinic. And uh, then I recognized that there are uh, many problems which need to be solved and the care needs to be improved. And so I got interested in doing research in this area. And, and I guess my question was slightly loaded because I think, you know, you're slightly unusual for the field in an academic space, certainly, because at the moment, this is a field very much dominated by spinal surgeons, despite the fact that neurologists have an incredible role both in the diagnostic care and also long-term care uh, for DCM. Why, why do you think perhaps we haven't seen more neurologists in this research space so far? Well, I absolutely agree. I share this observation. And I think one, one issue is definitely that uh, the awareness of uh, DCM is still too low in the neurological community, which is partly due to the lack of diagnostic criteria maybe. But I also got the impression that many neurologists perceive DCM still as a surgical condition because it's the only effective treatment up to date. But I also agree to what you were saying. Um, in practice and research, uh, neurological input is urgently needed. How do you think we can encourage more neurologists to come into DCM and, and to tackle, tackle the issues that we're facing? Generally, what I always try in my practice with students, but also at uh, conferences, is to uh, let's say, to, to show and uh, to present my fascination for the spinal cord. I think uh, in, in some neurologists underestimate the, the fascination and the relevance of the spinal cord because, um, because recently there has been so much advance in, in, in brain conditions that the spinal cord uh, went a bit into the background, but I think it's, uh, it's about time to get it back into the, into the spotlight. And in DCM particularly, I think that um, diagnostic criteria are required, um, which is one of the goal of the, of the RECODE DCM initiative. So this one um, is, is really important because 
uh, neurologists are, are very familiar with diagnostic criteria. And uh, if there are no diagnostic criteria, it's hard to uh, conduct uh, neurological studies, I think. And then the, the carryover of all the knowledge from the, from the spine surgeon and the neurosurgeon uh, perspective into the neuro community uh, must, be, must be done. And I think it's mostly with uh, hard work, scientific articles, workshops, conferences, and presence in the medical curri uh, curriculum as well. So that perhaps turns our attention then onto your, your trial, uh, the comp cord study. How did that question come about for you? So, so we had two issues we were concerned about from, from our perspective as spinal cord caretakers. Uh, one was that for the intraoperative monitoring of uh, spinal cord patients, there were only methods available to detect harm to the spinal cord, so like evoke potential monitoring, um, but few methods to estimate sufficient decompression. So there's intraoperative ultrasound, for example, uh, but apart from that, there is no mean yet. So this was one of our um, uh, objective. Um, the other one, which was more an overarching goal, uh, was to investigate the utility of CSF pressure assessments and DCM, since MRI is not always correlating well with the clinical presentation. And we thought that the extent of spinal cord compression could be well estimated with CSF pressure analyses. So in, in a normal situation, Carl, how does CSF flow around the cervical spinal cord? So in a, in a patient without any spinal cord compression or any brain condition which is affecting um, the CSF pressure, the compartment of CSF from the skull and the compartment in the spine, uh, they are connected. So you obtain more or less the same pressure values. And... What is happening that it's causing the CSF pulsations is that you have intracranial arteries and those are, are oscillating and due to the oscillation, uh, it is believed that the pulsations are also uh, transmitted to the, uh, to the CSF space and they are uh, synchronous to the arterial blood pressure. So when you see it, it's quite fascinating because you see a blood pressure signal and always with a with a delay of around like 100 to 300 milliseconds you see a csf pulsation and uh, this is how it should be in a patient without a spinal cord compression you should see at the intracranial csf space but also at the lumbar csf space as soon as you have a stenosis the signals who are uh, translated to or who are transmitted to the lumbar level might be affected and this was our hypothesis that uh, those signals uh, might be dampened due to the stenosis. I guess in a, in a different sense then so essentially what you're looking for is you know there's a, a little a sort of constant set of waves coming up the stream up in the head and you're measuring downstream and you're trying to see whether you can see the same strength of signal uh, which might be then you know reduced or absent because of narrowing in the neck is the is the concept yes that's the concept absolutely and let's just unpick that a little bit because many people possibly listening will go well why can't the mri just tell you how much of a decompression that you need to do why is and that extra step some sort of monitoring tool going to be useful so intraoperatively mri is not well feasible yet so there are there's still research on this going on but uh, up to date it's it's not feasible uh, in the routine. And 
also what the MRI is giving us is a, a very good structural anatomical data set, but it's uh, rather static. And what we, at least what we believe yet, and what has been also confirmed with our initial data is that uh, CSF pressure monitoring gives an account of dynamic cord compression. What we consulted when we were designing the study were uh, data from several years ago. So there was one study performed by uh, Brian Kwon uh, in, in Vancouver in Canada, uh, who did also CSF pressure monitoring in patients with acute spinal cord injury. And um, those were quite interesting studies because he saw he also saw that there was a, a reaction to the a response to the uh, decompression uh, during the monitoring. And we aim to translate it, the same concept to DCM, already bearing in mind that in DCM it might be very, very different from, from acute spinal cord injury patients. But the concept itself was, was established, I think. How are you monitoring this pressure change? process from, from the method is that we insert um, a catheter at the lumbar level. So at this area, the spinal cord is already over. It's just like the uh, remaining fibers uh, going out of the spinal cord. And what was the expectation about how that sort of pressure signal might relate to spinal cord pressure? Because obviously you're measuring a sort of a fluid pressure as opposed to actually measuring the spinal cord pressure itself. So we measured the, the CSF pressure. So the intraspinal pressure is also one method to go. For example, at, uh, it's been done in, in London uh, recently by Professor Papadopoulos, but also in patients with acute spinal cord injury. And the, the CSF pressure analysis is, uh, is a different approach. So we are uh, checking another compartment. So it's not the intraspinal space, it's the uh, intrathecal space or the CSF space and um, it's an indirect measure of uh, the intraspinal pressure because what what we believe what our hypothesis is is that um, the higher the uh, the pressure on the spinal cord um, the more severe the CSF pressure is affected below the level of injury and in, and in terms of um, just looking at the sort of st study design, perhaps we can come on to that a little bit to get an overview of what, how you approached investigating this question. Um, one of the questions that I always think about is, you know, trying to sell a lumbar puncture to, to somebody is quite difficult. It's not a procedure anyone wants to necessarily undergo. Is that something you encountered that's been difficult here? No, fortunately not. So I'm always uh, very grateful to all, all patients who, uh, who are confident in us that uh, we are doing a good job. And um, very few patients denied the enrollment for the catheter. And um, I think for pa from a patient's perspective, uh, two arguments were important. One was that uh, the catheter is introduced when the anesthesia already took place. So the patients do not, do not feel the insertion, actually. And the other argument is that the catheter is inserted um, remote from the lesion level and remote uh, of the surgical site. So we were not conflicting with the surgery in any kind. And this uh, convinced most of our patients to participate. What was the study design for the CompCord study? So we, we conducted a prospective cohort study and we enrolled patients with DCM who required uh, surgical decompression. 
And in our study, DCM was defined as one symptom and one sign related to DCM and matching MRI. And in patients uh, who had not uh, clinical signs, the neurophysiology uh, examinations could uh, substitute for spinal cord damage. Other uh, inclusion criteria were that uh, patients should not have interfering conditions other than DCM. And uh, patients should not have any contraindication for a lumbar catheter. For example, in patients with lumbar stenosis, um, we did not insert because it could also interfere with our measurements. What did you expect to find in this study? Did you have an expectation of what you were going to see? From the results we have seen a couple of years ago in patients with acute spinal cord injury, uh, we were at least uh, expecting what not to see. Um, we were uh, expecting to see quite subtle differences, so not too much a change of the uh, baseline pressure, but we were expecting that the pulsations from um, CSF, so from the cerebrospinal fluid, um, that they are changed. And the way you can imagine it, just, just from the physiology, is that due to arterial pulsation in the brain um, is bringing all of the all of the brain into oscillation those are also translated to the csf space and the csf is also then pulsating and we thought of it as a system which is like interrupted and narrowed at the cervical level and due to this the pulsations should be uh, should be dampened. This was our hypothesis, and we hypothesized that uh, quite immediately during surgery we should see the changes related to the decompressive maneuvers. And so, what were the findings? We find in most patients a significant increase of the CSF pulsations related to specific surgical steps. And we were able to exclude that hemodynamic parameters, for example, uh, blood pressure changes or the CSF baseline pressure itself uh, accounts for these uh, findings. And this is very important because I think when you are when you are critical about the findings, and we are always very like, uh, let's say, discussing a lot of our findings. Um, one issue to me was always: is it a refilling effect? So is it that after we insert the lumbar catheter and we lose some CSF during the insertion, is it just the refilling which makes uh, the pulsations increase during surgery? But our analysis have shown that um, the increase is really related to the surgical maneuvers and not happening before. And also that the baseline CSF pressure is changing not significantly. It's a very, uh, very low number, whereas the pulsations increase a lot. Mm -hmm. And can you break that down? And what were the steps that seemed to trigger that, that change surgically? What we did were that most of the uh, surgeries were video recorded. And what we did then was to consult one of our uh, surgeon uh, to look through the videos with me and to see whether there are any uh, what are the specific steps uh, related to the beginning of uh, CSF pressure changes? And we found that uh, in most patients, it was not, let's say, the, the access to the surgery site or the 
uh, or the end of the surgery, which was making the difference, but it was the decompression. So, for example, the removal of discs or a corpectomy, so the removal of a vertebrae uh, or the, the removal of, um, of the um, ligaments. So it was always the decompressive action which changes the signal. And that change was, was fairly immediate, was it, with the, with the release of those, the, or the removal of those structures? Yeah, it was interesting, and uh, this was not as expected. We, we found like different types of changes. So in some patients, we found quite immediate changes. So really like from one second to the other. And in others, it took a while. So it took like um, uh, five to 10 minutes. But it's also that it's also related to the surgery that it's not always the decompression is not always one single step, but it's uh, like different steps leading to decompression in the end. So uh, in many patients, it was a gradual increase. But still, when the changes were always um, present as soon as uh, the surgery, uh, the, the decompression took took place. Fascinating, and and did everyone achieve then that 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 change in, in the, or that return of, of the pulsatile flow? At at baseline, we had pulsations present in most of the patients, so it was not um, that they were like totally absent. And one issue is that we do not only see different evolutions, so not only gradual and immediate increase, but we also see different morphologies of the pressure waves from before to after decompression and some patients some patients started with very low pulsations and then after decompression they had very high high ones whereas in in others we had uh, quite well preserved pulsations and then there were only little changes in the end so we achieved some changes in every patient, but the extent was very different and was highly uh, varying. In some, we had huge changes and others, uh, more subtle changes. And have you tried to reconcile that? Why, why do you think that is? So this is one of our most important questions for uh, further data analysis. What we, what we saw so far um, is that the amount of the extent of change is of, of the pulsation is between like 10 20 percent but in other patients is nearly doubling and in others it's like uh, a, bl a black and white difference it's like uh, going from nothing to uh, to a huge pulsation and i think it's really related to the individual patient characteristics and this is one thing which was particularly challenging, but also something very interesting and very important to my mind that um, we tried to uh, kind of mix a cohort analysis, but also going into the single subject analysis as well. Because patients with DCM, they are, uh, they are, they are so different. They are so different properties going from uh, the different length of, uh, symptoms and going to uh, the MRI properties. So is it more like the bone which is compressing or more the ligament? And um, what is the age of the patient? So there are there are, there are many factors which might um, which might confound the the findings. And uh, to date, we we cannot surely tell which ones are uh, which ones are the. Uh, decisive ones because the cohort is too small to do um, subgroup analyses yet.
So we need some more, pa some more patients to do like real subgroup analyses and tell uh, which patients has, has which pr uh, pressure profile. And, and and so I guess then that sort of leads on to really what, what where are you going next with this this investigation? One important issue for us is to complete the follow up. So we had yet a six month follow up available, and we were really happy that we we saw that most patients uh, actually had a clinical improvement. Um, this was this was great to see, and um, one thing is uh, that we want to. Uh, investigate the 12-month follow-up and also the correlation with the MRI because we expect that there must be a certain correlation or it could be that there is a certain correlation to the MRI findings as well and we do um, a baseline and also a follow-up MRI and um, this is one goal we want to achieve and the other uh, analysis we want to um, we want to continue is the analysis of um, the um, spinal cord perfusion from the data um, from the data we acquired? And so clearly, some 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 important steps still still to come, and and it just clearly sounds like there's there's more ground to cover before we can see this as a sort of routine part of, of practice for sure. But but sitting where you are now, having done this study so far, what do you think are the implications or applications of this technique for DCM? What I definitely think from from what we see now is that in in patients uh, in patients who have like complex spine who undergoes complex spine surgery, so patients with multiple levels of stenosis, patients in which the uh, surgeons can already anticipate uh, that they have bad side on the surgical ground, uh, I think it's it's a method which could uh, which could be very very useful. It's not a it's not a method for everyone. So I think uh, we are we are in steady contact with our surgical department. They are very uh, very good collaborators. It's with our uh, director Professor Farshad, and in the discussions we have with our surgical team, um, we always uh, emphasize and come to the common conclusion that it's not a method for everybody. In some patients, it's not necessary, but in some patients, it's a really desirable instrument. Um, to estimate that uh, compression is fully done. Mm -hmm. no, I, I, that would resonate with me. I think you get that some sort of live readout is, is very powerful because there is a shift to using ultrasound uh, for that purpose. But you know, particularly with anterior procedures, the probes are quite difficult. It's it's difficult anyway. But also, you're only really getting a visualization of the the piece of this the theca, the the spinal cord that you've exposed. So you know, you could miss areas off 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 your view if you like which obviously with a with a csf pressure monitoring presumably would be would be picked up and one of the things that occurred to me as well and you mentioned that that future analysis on perfusion is this something that could help the anesthetic team intraoperatively obviously spinal cord perfusion can be it's obviously important and it's going to be modified a lot by the the anesthetic uh, treatment that patients go under during the operation yeah i definitely hope that we can contribute to this uh, important question of hemodynamic management because in the I mean, already in the field of uh, acute spinal cord injury, there are, there are lots of questions. And in DCM, there is basically uh, basically no evidence at all how to um, how to best achieve the uh, spinal cord perfusion during surgery and also after surgery. And um, what is what is already established is a way to calculate the spinal cord perfusion pressure from the uh, CSF pressure and the 
uh, mean material pressure. And we also have this data because uh, in addition to the CSF pressure, we also record the arterial blood pressure. Um, but still, it's a rough estimate because it's um, the um, CSF pressure is some like, let's say, global parameter. And how much uh, the spinal cord perfusion pressure we uh, calculate is giving us an idea about the, um, the site of injury still needs to be investigated but we we have this data and we want to explore it to see whether there is any use it would be very very important and a very uh, important step one of the other areas i was interested to see whether it could you know uh, sort of explore as well is you know in the sort of diagnostic workup you know for example asymptomatic spinal cord compression think there's an application here for csf pressure monitoring yeah yeah definitely um, the, the intraoperative monitoring is only one part of this whole uh, endeavor to investigate CSF pressure. One other is to, um, to see the, the significance of CSF pressure um, assessments at bedside. So patients undergoing lumbar puncture and, um, and then um, assessing the uh, pressure and the pulsations. And what we did so far in this was uh, to test a healthy cohort. So, um, or let's say a, a cohort of patients without spinal cord, mechanical spinal cord compression. And for this cohort, we are currently uh, trying to set up kind of a set of reference values. Because interestingly, in the CSF physiology community, we have normal values for CSF opening pressure. But for pulsations, for example, there's very little evidence how, how they should be. So what is a normal pulsation pressure uh, is not clear yet. And um, this we want to this we want to further investigate. And what we what we do yet already in our clinical practice is that in patients, as you mentioned, with asymptomatic spi uh, spinal cord compression, or also in those patients who have a discrepancy between the uh, clinical findings and the the um, the extent of stenosis. Uh, we are doing bedside measurements already, so we estimate um, pulsations the best we can, and we use uh, Quackenstedt's maneuver as well. Quackenstedt's maneuver it's a it's an it's a traditional test. It's from the has been invented in 1916. I can tell you more about that. Yeah, please do. I was very interested to read about that study, um, that test. I've never heard about it. The first time I heard about it was from uh, my supervisor, uh, who's also the director of the spinal cord injury. It's uh, Professor Armin Kurt. And um, when we designed the study, he came up with this test uh, from his experience in, in spinal cord injury. And it's a test which has been named after a German neurologist. So um, a doctor called... Uh, named uh, Hans Queckenstedt, and he published um, a paper in 1916 where he described from a small case series uh, this test to diagnose spinal cord compression. And it was used uh, frequently before spinal cord imaging was allowed us to visualize spinal cord compression. And it's performed by firm pressure on both jugular veins during lumbar puncture. And a positive response is usually defined as a pressure increase uh, in CSF pressure from baseline, 
and usually it's between 10 and 20 millimeter mercury. And um, in patients who have severe spinal cord compression, uh, we see that this response is usually reduced. And one, one important thing and um, what, what was really interesting to me is that you cannot only do it in a patient uh, in resting position, but you can also move the head and make the same maneuvers with head inclination or head reclination. And this is a very interesting task because uh, you might be able to, to better estimate the dynamic cord compression. And this was what, what fascinated me so much about it. So that's really interesting. So just, just to unpick that a little bit. So essentially those maneuvers at the bedside are designed to elevate the CSF pressure in normal circumstances. But in patients with, with stenosis in the neck, they would be dampened. Yes. So you cannot, uh, the, the, the pre what you do by the uh, vein compression is that you increase the intracranial pressure. And um, what usually happens is that as soon as the intracranial pressure is increased, um, this this pressure increase is also transmitted to the lumbar level, and as soon as you have the um, the, the cord compression at the cervical level, uh, the Q test is not longer responsive at the lumbar level. Fascinating, and 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 uh, so presumably that study is ongoing, and uh, is well, how is that playing out? Because I guess the benefit now is you've got very detailed readouts of these pressure waveforms, which obviously historically was probably measured with a simple pressure one-off reading. Yeah, definitely. So in the in the past, um, I think there are there are different uh, things that are that we change compared to the past. So um, Quackenstedt's test uh, was abandoned for a while. So as soon as as imaging um, as imaging uh, was feasible and was uh, sensitive to detect cord compression, at least like in a in a structural way, um, it was abandoned. And now. Uh, we do not want to like challenge imaging with um, Quackenstedt's test, but what we want to investigate is whether CSF pressure assessments and including Quackenstedt's test uh, may give us an additional information. And that is a totally different question than um, our ancestors in spinal cord neurology had 100 years ago. So at that time, they they had no other they had no other chance to. Uh, estimate compression than uh, by this and today what we are doing is uh, is very different to the past because um, we have uh, as you already said we have um, advanced our our technical uh, possibilities by digital recordings um, so uh, pulsation analysis was not feasible with analog manometer so this is something something really different and also the way we see at Krakenstedt um, today is that uh, we do not only want to measure the absolute increase of baseline from baseline of the Q test, but we also want to uh, to analyze like the the subtle the changes during Q test. For example, the increase of pulsations on the top of the Q test, which occur, and this has never been looked into. And we expect that this might be like an additional readout. Mm -hmm. No, it's fascinating. It's a sort of a reminder to me, I think, of perhaps how with MRI over the last 30 years, whilst it gave us some tremendous gains, I think it, it's potentially sent the field down a, 
down a bit of an alleyway, which we need to retreat back from. You know, we started to see things visually on the MRI of compression. We thought this disease was all about compression. We treat compression, et cetera, et cetera. But as time's gone on, we recognize that that is not a perfect um, framework for this disease. And we need to step back from that and, and I guess, reapproach concepts which, which predate, predate MRI, you know, things that have been dormant for, for 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. And what I, what I would add to this is that um, in particular for the follow-up, it's uh, for follow-ups in surgical studies, but as well in, in other interventional studies. So let's say um, uh, studies uh, which test innovative drugs in, in DCM or cell therapies, um, it's, it's not so easy to use MRI as a readout. And also like clinical, clinical readouts are not... Uh, are not always so reliable, in particular um, with the scores we have yet. And uh, all of these need to be advanced. And I think CSF pressure analyses might be, might be one additional parameter which can be introduced, in particular when you apply um, intraspinal drugs or intraspinal cell therapies, because uh, you may check whether the decompression in patients are, is, is sufficient. <laughs> What a fantastic interview, and it's great to see other methods being used as MRI imaging isn't 100%. What do you take away from this study, Ben? In short, I think what an incredible and underexplored opportunity. There is clearly more work to be done to prove the value of spinal cord pressure monitoring, but the concept you know, feels right to me. And CSF pressure monitoring has a much more developed history in other conditions, such as traumatic brain injury and traumatic spinal cord injury, as well as a condition called hydrocephalus. So the importance of treating pressure changes to, to prevent tissue injury is not something that's totally alien or without scientific precedent. But more than that, I think that this could be very timely for DCM. You know, it's cropped up during the interview, but we, we have a problem now that we haven't got a perfect test for DCM. We rely on MRI to help diagnose DCM, to help decide the surgical treatment. But if visualized compression is not a specific marker for DCM, it means that surgically targeting that compression may also not be the specific endpoint of the operation itself. So having a tool to tell you in real time would just be amazing. You know, at a point in time, you can actually do something about it. There is this increase in using ultrasound during the operation. I haven't got that much experience of doing that myself, but my feel is that probably they're quite bulky probes, quite difficult to use, and you can only really see the area of the spinal cord that you've exposed. You would miss things that perhaps you hadn't reached off, off that viewpoint. So I think long and short, it feels like a great opportunity, this, and something that's really got, a, got great potential. I guess the downside is the lumbar puncture that's required. Do you think the community of people affected would be happy to have that done, Ewan? I've actually had two lumbar punctures on my myelopathy journey. I ended up in A&E with neck pain and a really bad headache, so they tested me for meningitis due to the symptoms. I think the word lumbar puncture is a lot more frightening than the actual procedure itself. From my point of view, it really isn't that bad, so I don't see it as a problem, not after my experience, especially if the person has had sort of spine surgery in the past, the lumbar punch in comparison is a walk in the park. Well, that's uh, reassuring to hear. And I think it was obviously good that the study itself found it was a safe procedure, didn't add any, any untoward problems. Well, that is the end of this episode, but also the end of this series. We'll be back in 2022 to keep you up to date with the latest developments in degenerative cervical myelopathy. 
If you'd like to be part of Series 3, please do get in touch. Email me at ben at myelopathy.org. A reminder, of course, to subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Our thanks to Carl Zipser for joining us, to Carl Homer from Cambridge TV, our producer, and finally the National Institute for Health Research, United Kingdom, an award from whom supported this podcast series. But of course, the views expressed are not necessarily those of the NIHR, National Health Service, or Department of Health, United Kingdom. See you in 2022.